when it came out, it was really impressive. And I was blown away. I've been doing this for like 20 years. I was really blown away by it. It was popular and it was popular from anything I've seen before, but it wasn't as popular as it is in this moment. And so what changed that was ChatGPT. What it made me realize is this AI is an alien intelligence. Hey, Brad. Hey, Chris, what's up? We just recorded hey, one and then the guy was mowing the lawn, so we had to start over. <laughs> yeah, we're back again from our perspective, but not from yours. So welcome. Today, we're just going to jump into it. We want to talk about the concept of emergence and, you know, specifically like emergent abilities of artificial intelligence. But to just begin, Brad, could you talk us through what is emergence generally? So when I think of emergence, I think of two things. The first being you get something out that you didn't put into it and that something out only comes about because you have a lot of something. So for example, the idea of wetness emerges from two hydrogens and an oxygen together. So if you just have a single H2O molecule, you don't have this idea of wetness. It doesn't really make sense. You just see electrical interactions. But if you put a lot of water molecules together in aggregate, the confluence of these water molecules creates a new concept. A new concept emerges called wetness that you know what I mean by that. So that's the first thing. The second thing that comes to mind when you talk of emergence is that small changes to some kind of quantitative parameter in a system makes huge changes to its qualitative behavior. So again, just going with the water analogy. So let's say we turn the quantitative parameter of temperature up, you would see the water start jiggling a little bit more and then all of a sudden at 99.9 degrees Celsius and then it turns to 100, then all of a sudden you have this big change that the water turns into a gas. And uh, so the those are the two things that come to my mind when we talk about emergence. And so if we apply this to AI, there's some really interesting things, both of these vectors that come out. And I will discuss that specifically. And then I think there's a, a general concept to this that applies to computation in general. And we can touch into that. So you, you want to jump into AI or did you have any other path you wanted to go? Yeah, we can do it. One thing I, I thought of when you were going through the water analogy was like, if the water lands in a hole in the ground, you get like a lake or a pond. But if the water lands like in a city, you get a flood. And so, I mean, <laughs> I, I know that's not what you mean when you talk about like emergence necessarily, but I just wonder like about that. Does the emergence change based on like the environment beyond just the scale so of it? I think what you're talking about is called context. So context matters a lot in our lives and you could say something that is really funny with, with your friends in that context, but maybe you said in a different context, it's very, very bad. Or if you have water in a swimming pool, it's really good. If you have water in a toilet paper factory, that's probably not good. So that's different, that's context, and that's also really important. And of course, emergence changes as a function of context. Gotcha, cool. I mean, yeah, let's jump into it. Like in, in, in the context of artificial intelligence, what is emergent? What are examples of this? Yeah, so if you, so the quantitative parameter we varied in the water example was temperature, but the quantitative parameter you vary in neural networks is the number of parameters. And what that means is a neural network is just a bunch of 
multiplications and additions, we call it weights and biases. And the more of these multiplications and additions you add, the more parameters you have in this model. It's, it's like akin to the number of neurons in your brain. And so I actually have a, a nice little diagram I can share real quick that shows a, a specific example of this. So the, I just saw this uh, blog post, 137 Emergent Abilities of Large Language Models, but I just wanted to show this graphic in the beginning because I think it's a good illustration of that. And we can, we can link this article. I actually haven't read the whole thing. So what you see is on this horizontal axis, the x-axis, you see the number of parameters in a log scale. And so what happens, and then you look at the accuracy of the task. So there's modular arithmetic, IPA, transliteration, word on screen. So these are just tasks that you test these models with. And you can see that there's basically a linear or sublinear change. And then all of a sudden, at a certain amount of parameters, you just see it shoot off. Similar to, it's a phase transition, like we talked about with water. And so one of these emergent things we see is with its ability to solve tasks. You're just like, okay, AI is dumb. It can't do anything. We change the number of parameters. It doesn't, kind of helps. But then you keep going and to a certain degree, it just shoots off the charts. And, um, and so that's one thing we see. But we also see this happen across tasks. So you learn something good on a single task and then all of a sudden you can do many many different related tasks which up until that point you could only solve this task and even if you could solve this task good at a certain point you don't necessarily improve so much on this task but you improve on a broad range of tasks and then the third category is just in kind of fundamental abilities so for example in gpt2 or bert for example you could do things like transfer learning you could add inputs and outputs and do supervised learning but all of a sudden with gpt and in GBT4, you can do prompting. So all of a sudden you get this totally new way of communicating with the AI that, that is an emergent thing that, that we couldn't even think about earlier. And, and so now we could actually have a conversation with reinforcement learning with human feedback, but we can actually prompt this thing now. And so prompt engineering is this totally new field that emerged just by increasing the parameters. So there's this idea, or let me pause there and see if, if you want to. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting. Like one thing it kind of made me think of is like what like so it's an increase in parameters like as you scale these things up you get these new abilities and like two thoughts i had is like one what are all the those things like is it purely more data is it increasing vector dimensions or are there multiple ways to kind of scale the model up and get these emergent behaviors and the other one is just a comment like the idea that as it gets more of these emergent abilities it can translate them to different functions or, or different activities that seems very human to me almost because I find that in life a lot, like you learn one thing and it may on the surface appear irrelevant to another thing, but you find when you start doing it, oh yeah, like that thing I learned about X is helping me with Y now, even though you never intended for that to happen. My question was just around like, how do the models scale up? Like, is it, it's purely, you know, parameters. What do you mean by parameters? Can that be an increase in the, the vector dimensions? Can it just be raw like data? You just feed it more information. Is it multifaceted, this process? Yeah, good question. So you need three things for this to work. If you scale just one of these, it doesn't work. So you need, this is kind of well known now, but just to say it again is, is you need compute, you need big, fast 
parallel computers. And so in 2012, when we had AlexNet, which kind of started all, all this craziness, GPUs came out and Alex Krzyzewski, he had some code that could run neural networks on, on GPUs. And so we're like, hey, let, let's use that. And it just crushed everything. So compute is important. And then you need a lot of data. So if you have a lot of compute, but not a lot of data, well, it's like having a human locked in a room its whole life. And unfortunately, there's some examples of that even in humans and they can't speak, they can't do cognition, even though they have a big potential intelligence, which is your compute. So computer potential intelligence data is actually making it practical. And then the third thing is algorithms that can take advantage of the compute. So if you, you have a really good algorithm but doesn't scale with the amount of compute, then it doesn't really help you a lot. It's too rigid. So it needs to learn from the data, take advantage of the compute. And the interesting thing is the transformer networks that we're using today with GBT3, it's not much different than like Walter and Pitt's neurons in, in the perceptron. It's really not so different. It just, it's very efficient to use. And so it unblocks the scaling. And I think there's also, I don't think it's a coincidence because we, we could have had a kind of a counterfactual history where we had a lot of data, but not a lot of compute or we had a lot of, in reality, they all came about at the same time. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I think when we had better compute, it became super cheap for everyone to have a computer and then like we love our dogs and children and, and so we took a bunch of pictures and wrote messages on Facebook and we got a ton of data and then based on all the, that there was more research into algorithms and, and it all just kind of came together but actually I think there was a lot of time that the algorithm was there and the data and compute had to catch up so if, I guess if I was to rephrase it actually the algorithm was there for 50 years and, and then yeah. the data and compute kind of came together and then it's almost like this point, inevitability like it was all heading toward this point but then there were there was a lag there were lagging components that had to catch up for it to happen yeah, exactly. And so to your point of exactly how they scale, we I think we talked about another point that Moore's Law, you had a doubling in transistors every two years, and that's this line here. So this is an exponential. This is a this is a log graph. So this is an ex, a straight line on a on a logarithmic graph is an exponential. So you have an exponential increase in that doubles every two years on kind of these first era machine learning models. And then in this modern era, you just see this uh, much steeper exponential and you have this 3.4 month doubling. And so you just see the scale is immense. And so there's this idea of the, of the scaling hypothesis that, so this is Tesla. So it's what that means is you have some task and loss is kind of the opposite of accuracy. And so the, the smaller this is, the mean, it means kind of the less errors the model's making. And again, this is another log graph. And so each time this amount of compute goes up by a factor of 10 and then the data set size and parameters, and you could see an almost perfect correspondence to an increase in data set size parameters and compute wow. and yeah and so so far we don't see an end to this and so the the kind of naive there's more we could go into but the the naive thing is well then why don't we just keep scaling until we hit a we hit a blocker somewhere there's kind of no conceivable or, or i mean even theoretical limit to this and I think that's what people are doing. Some people are arguing that we're missing kind of some fundamental things. I actually happen to believe that we can keep scaling it. And what's interesting and what elucidates this 
belief I have is in some of the research that uh, Stephen Wolfram has done in cellular automata. And so what he discovered with these cellular automata, it's it just a grid of black and white cells, and there's a rule. So in this first one, you have white, black, white. So you look up the rule, where is it at? White, black, white. So then the, the cell underneath is black. So you put it black. And then this one's black, white, white. So black, white, white. So it's black here. So you just update these rules. And so there's very simple rules. Like what is here? Six, eight. There's eight rules here. And so you would naively expect that if we had simple rules, we'd have simple patterns like this. Or like the so you would get simple rules would create simple pattern. But what he found again this emergence is and I think this rule thirty was his favorite one is that you could get extremely complex behavior and even random behavior that you wouldn't expect from these simple rules. And from that he came up with some some principles. And one of those principles is the the principle of computational equivalence. And so what the principle of computational equivalence states is that outside of some obviously trivial computation that you actually have the maximally complex computation. So you would kind of think that if you had more compute, more whatever, better algorithms, that there'd, there'd be this gradient from like, you have like the, the most simple compute to the most complex compute. But what this principle is stating, there's actually only two classes. There's trivial compute and maximally complex compute. And Alan Turing came to a similar idea, Turing completeness. And so what it makes me think, so that's the kind of theoretical observation. Practically, obviously, to to run this compute, this requires a lot of resources. And so if you can make it more efficient, even though it's maximally computationally powerful, to realize that you need a lot of compute. And so I think that breakthroughs won't be anything fundamental, but they'll just make it more efficient to do it so that we can get there sooner without having to run. But I think even with the simplest computer, we would get there, but we just need, let's say, a trillion years or something. And so we want to not wait a trillion years. And so with, with better models like transformers, we can get there in years, like a single digit number of years. And yeah, so that's my opinion on that. Yeah. I mean, it kind of makes me think of the idea of nature versus nurture, where you have this like this kind of fundamental almost nature out there you know that it exists and that it's this compilation of all of these simpler parts but your ability to nurture whatever it is that you're trying to grow it's limited by i guess our abilities or our understanding of how to really maximize the potential as you put it does that seem apt yeah i think the nature versus nurture thing is a really good analogy to this kind of compute algorithm data and even context. And so I think the data is the nurture piece, the compute is the nature piece, and the algorithm is kind of the, the practical piece which ties these together and makes better use of the compute, makes better use of the data, and is and is the glue which makes these run, like the operating system on the hardware. We're becoming better parent for our data. Yeah, exactly. What are like some examples, like this has obviously become more relevant recently because of of GPT, frankly, and how we, we had this rather big leap from like 3.5 to 4, even where people were just seeing like, wow, this works way better, it can do way more, it's performing much better on all of these, these kind of benchmark metrics, or even human level intelligence metrics. So what are some of the examples of emergent abilities of AI that are kind of float causing this to float up to the kind of top of the public consciousness almost even? Well, I gave a few examples, but I think just looking at the data 
So GPT-4 was out and when you, I don't know if you used it when it came out or even GPT-3 in its, or sorry, yeah, it was GPT-3. When it came out, it was really impressive and I was blown away. I've been doing this for, for like 20 years. I was really blown away by it, but it wasn't like it, it was popular and it was popular from anything I've seen before, but it wasn't as popular as it is in this moment. And so what changed that was chat GPT. And so what it made me realize is is this AI is an alien intelligence and we could have alien intelligence all around us. But what matters is kind of the communication bandwidth to that alien intelligence. And so while GPT-3 was sitting there, super just as intelligent as now a chat GPT, but it couldn't communicate itself well to humans. It just, it was an alien, right? How could we expect it to communicate with us? And so it was kind of unwieldy, very difficult to use. You could get it to do it because it was intelligent. But when ChatGPT came out and and you could talk to it like you and I are talking or you talk to it as if you're asking someone to do a task for you, I think it just blew people's minds and captured their attention. And it was really this reinforcement learning with human feedback to teach it what humans are, how humans like to speak, what humans expect. And we needed a human to teach the alien to how to work with us. And and so I think that's the important piece here was that like, and it makes me think of people with autism or even Stephen Hawking. Imagine Stephen Hawking didn't have a keyboard or, or paper to write with like one of the most intelligent humans to ever walk the earth he wouldn't be like we wouldn't even know right he wouldn't tell us about hawking radiation in black holes and so i think this communication bandwidth is a really important concept definitely and there, there are like a lot of assumptions i guess in the animal kingdom about like we assume dolphins are super intelligent and elephants but like our ability to communicate with them and measure it is limited by the fact that we you know speak english and we observe things with certain sensory organs and we can't fully understand what's going on inside of their minds and and how they process information maybe one day we'll find out like these dolphins are really smart they're super intelligent we just we just didn't have the tools exactly and they don't have opposable thumbs so they couldn't necessarily build tools as well as us and i often think that like why not if you look at their brain they they have the potential to be intelligent not maybe not as much as oh maybe they're more intelligent because they have even bigger brains but it's like let's just assume they were super intelligent what would they do like they'd probably like stay out of our way because we'll like stab them with a spear or something and maybe they're just like super happy and i and i've i've swam with dolphins and and they go up to you and they look in your eyes and they play with you and like it's i don't know it makes me as i interact more with this new alien species we call ai it makes me think that there's more non-traditional forms of intelligence that we just don't communicate with, like even in our body. Like imagine how much intelligence, imagine if you had a connection to, I don't know, your pancreas and you saw how intelligent it was, like changing the, the homeostasis set point of your blood sugar levels in your body. There may be an intelligence or, or maybe like even the universe somehow, or, or maybe this is what people call God. There's this like universal intelligence or maybe there's even an intelligence 
intelligence of society that's even hard to communicate with because it's a non-traditional form of intelligence. And I think somehow we're only set up to think about, to understand, to even call intelligent things that we can communicate with and are similar to human intelligence. And maybe if there's a way we can have a translator, we can tap into many different massive forms of, of other intelligence that we haven't tapped into yet. Yeah, and it can kind of augment your own intelligence and the way you think. Like, I mean, for instance, with the dolphin, it, it lacks the opposable thumbs and other ways that we interact with the world that maybe limited the ability of its potential intelligence to achieve similar things. And then also, like in the example of, you know, if you were in touch with your, your pancreas in this way that you described, it could alter your understanding of the importance of eating healthy food or lifestyle choices like exercise, because you wouldn't just have this kind of, oh, it feels good. I feel better over time if I do it. You would maybe have this very keen understanding of like, I actually know what it's doing to me on this crazy, yeah. sophisticated level. Yeah, it's a good point. And Steve Jobs, I don't know, I saw some video where he called computers the bicycle for the mind. I think AI is like the rocket ship for the mind. Or maybe even it's like the mind for the mind. <laughs> or it is the mind. No, I agree. I, I think AI has the potential to make us healthier, even to make us more empathetic. Like, let's say you had autism or, or whatever, and you were wearing these glasses, and it was like, oh, when you said that, it made Chris sad. And then you're like, huh, interesting. Like, I think it can make us us more human than we've ever been in our entire life. Help us understand and perceive our limitations and perhaps respond to those limitations differently. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, on that notion of potential, and we've kind of discussed in your view, this limitless potential in some respect, how does that complicate efforts? Like I know this week, the Biden administration sort of started proposing some AI regulations, but given this potential, that's a, a, a rather massive unknown how does that complicate these efforts and like our ability to, you know, we've talked about alignment, like align it with our goals or regulate it from a, a government that often already struggles to keep up with technology? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think the, I have a lot of family in government and I see a lot of what happens behind the scenes and it's a really difficult problem. I think the government gets a lot of hate. I think they're trying to do their best. I don't think what worked in the past of like, let's say we were all growing corn and we wanted to regulate like not using certain pesticides or whatever and you have this lobby. Like that works because things were slow. The government's slow. I think it was fine. Like the government just needed to change a few things every 10 years or 100 years. But I don't think it's going to work in this world unless something changes and i'm optimistic we can all work together to find a solution but it it does worry me because at some point we we may need regulations so where are the regulations going to come from maybe it's a few good people who come up with a product like i i'm generally a believer of, of laissez-faire economics of the free market can solve things so i believe someone will come up with a product to protect you and say hey buy my ai protector that protects you against deep fakes that protects you and I think that may be the way it does it and as strong of a libertarian I am and a believer in laissez for economics there are some problems that just free market capitalism can't solve for example with nature with 
people who, let's say, have mental disabilities, can't think for themselves, are very, very poor people. So there needs to be, I would say, I've always estimated that 5%, like I think 5% of GDP should go to the government to protect nature, to protect people who can't necessarily help themselves. And so I think I have a similar view of AI. Like I think most will come from the free market because people will want to protect themselves. Like you buy cars with airbags. I don't know if there's a government regulation but my guess is even if there wasn't a government regulation people want to be safe and companies would still have airbags in there but there's still like these five percent of things where there's this like corporation dumping stuff into the river that i think is really hard for pure free market to solve and so i think the government will need to jump in on a five percent but i i don't think it's going to solve the 95 percent of what we need to solve i think that'll come from the free market i think we covered it it was good man it was a good chat cool all right, Chris. Well, thanks for organizing these questions. And I find them really interesting. And have a good day. You too, Brad. See ya. All right.